Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. This morning's reading is taken from the book of Numbers, chapter 16, verses 1 to 50. Korah, son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and certain Reubenites, Dathan and Ibaram, sons of Eliab, and On, son of Peleth, became insolent and rose up against Moses. With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? When Moses heard this, he fell face down. Then he said to Korah and all his followers, In the morning the Lord will show who belongs to him and who is holy, and he will make that person come near him. The man he chooses will cause to come near him. You, Korah, and all your followers are to do this. Take censers, and tomorrow put burning coals and incense in them before the Lord. The man who the Lord chooses will be the one who is holy. You Levites have gone too far. Moses also said to Korah, Now listen, you Levites. Isn't enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the Israelite community and brought you near himself to do the work at the Lord's tabernacle and to stand before the community and minister to them? He has brought you and all your fellow Levites near himself. But now you are trying to get the priesthood too. It is against the Lord that you and all your followers have banded together. Who is Aaron that you should grumble against him? Then Moses summons Dathan and Ibaram and the sons of Eliab. But they said, we will not come. Isn't it enough that you have brought us out out of a land of flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? And now you also want the Lord to lord it over us? Moreover, you haven't brought us into a land flowing with milk and the honey or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Do you want to treat these men like slaves? No, we will not come. Then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, Do not accept their offering. I have not taken so much as of a donkey from them, nor have I wronged any of them. Moses said to Korah, You and all your followers are to appear before the Lord tomorrow, you and they and Aaron. Each man is to take his censer and put incense in it, 250 censers in all, and present it before the Lord. You and Aaron are to present your censers also. So each of them took his censer, put burning coals and incense in it, and stood with Moses and Aaron at the entrance to the tent of meeting. When Korah had gathered all his followers in opposition to them at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord appeared to the entire assembly. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Separate yourselves from this assembly so that I can put an end to them at once. But Moses and Aaron fell face down and cried out, O God, the God who gives breath to all living things, will you be angry with the entire assembly when only one man sins? 
the Lord said to Moses, Say to the assembly, Move away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Ibaram. Moses got up and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. He warned the assembly, Move back from the tents of these wicked men. Do not touch anything belonging to them, or you will be swept away because of all their sins. So they moved away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Dathan and Abiram had come out and were standing with their wives, children, and the little ones at the entrances to their tents. Then Moses said, This is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things, and that it was not my idea. If these men die a natural death and suffer the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new, and the earth opens up its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the realm of the dead, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. As soon as he finished saying all this, the ground under them split apart. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and all those associated with Korah together with their possessions. They went down alive into the realm of the dead with everything they owned. The earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. At their cries, all the Israelites around them fled, shouting, the earth is going to swallow us too. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, to remove the censers from the charred remains and scatter the coals some distance away, for the censers are holy, the censers of the men who sinned at the cost of their lives. Hammer the censers into sheets, overlay the altar, for they were presented before the Lord and have become holy. Let them be a sign to the Israelites. So Eleazar the priest collected the bronze censers brought by those who had been burned to death, and he had them hammered out to overlay the altar, as the Lord directed him through Moses. This was to remind the Israelites that no one except a descendant of Aaron should come to burn incense before the Lord, or he would become like Korah and his followers. The next day, the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You have killed the Lord's people, they said. But when the assembly gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron and turned towards the tent of meeting, suddenly the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron went to the front of the tent of meeting and the Lord said to Moses, Get away from this assembly so that I can put an end to them at once and they fell face down. Then Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put incense in it, along with burning coals from the altar, and hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. Wrath has come out from the Lord, the plague has started. So Aaron did this as Moses said, and ran into the midst of the assembly. The plague had already started among the people, but Aaron offered the incense and made atonement for them. He stood between the living and the dead, and the plague stopped. But 14,700 people died from the plague, in addition to those who had died because of Korah. 
Then Aaron turned to Moses at the entrance to the tent of meeting, for the plague had stopped. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rob, very much. Friends, hello, my name's Matthew. I'm a member of staff here as well. It's my pleasure to, uh, to welcome you, particularly if you're here for the first time. It's good to, good to have you with us. Let's pray, asking God for his help with this passage. Our Father, we believe in you, we believe in your Son, Jesus, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. Please, Lord, now as we open up your word by your Spirit, bring it to life for us. Ultimately, that we might know your Son, Jesus, more and believe and trust in him. In his name we pray. Amen. Friends, my concern today is whether we appreciate the magnitude of the Christian message. You see, these are issues of life and death, heaven and hell, the salvation of the world. If you're a Christian, if you're a regular here, I'm sure we believe this all, but in practice, for many of us, and for me certainly, we often shrink it down, our Christianity, just to the level of a hobby, one aspect of many in our lives. Rather, what are the things that get us animated? What are the things that we just can't help but talk about? Perhaps it's political issues. Uh, fuel shortages, perhaps it's sports, how our, how our football team's done this weekend, perhaps it's the holiday that we've got coming up, or maybe within church life, what are the things that get us animated, what are the things that get, get us talking, maybe it's the really good things like some of those great fun summer picnics we had, maybe it's some of the bad things like the current issues going on in church life. These are all things that rightly should get us animated, but they should all be at that appropriate level, shouldn't they? But my question is, where does the gospel fit in? Where does the message of Jesus Christ land for us? See, I get up to preach and I'm feeling like it's hard work. Or we stand to sing and we go through the motions with our minds on other things. Or we have the opportunity to meet up with someone and, and, and read the Bible with them, but we're tired and we're feeling like, oh, I wouldn't mind if they cancelled. Or someone at work comes and asks us a question about Christianity and we think, oh, it's a distraction. Friends, do we see the magnitude, the wonder of the gospel of Jesus? I fear often we do not. But God knows this, God is gracious to us and God helps us. And in the Bible, he puts a number of very striking stories to show us how important this all is. In our passage today, we have two very striking moments, don't we? Two dramatic moments in this terrible and tragic story that are given to us to show us the magnitude of the gospel of Jesus. That's what we will see in the passage today. First, we'll see the, sh the seriousness of sin in that first incident, and then we'll see the picture of our stunning Savior in the second one. 
Remember though where we are in the story in Numbers. Numbers is this journey of the people from Mount Sinai to the promised land. And, and they should have gone in last week, if you're here. Remember that. They should have gone in, but they refused. And so now they're wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. And they have seven tests of their faithfulness. They've had four so far. They've failed them all. And now again, they grumble against their leaders. And they're punished for it. Yet, the rejected leader, Aaron, the high priest, he steps in to save them. So let's see these two dramatic moments and see what God is teaching us about the wonder of the gospel of Jesus. So first, let's see the seriousness of sin. This is the bulk of the story, verses 1 to 40, the seriousness of sin. Sin is rebellion against God. Humans saying, I'm in charge, not you. But it takes many different forms, and, uh, and, and a number of them are seen in our passage today. So verse 1, Korah, son of Izhar, and then these various other people, they became insolent and rose up against Moses. Verse 3, they came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, you've gone too far, the whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? We're all God's special people, they say. You and Aaron, you're not more important. Now, we've got to remember who Moses and Aaron are. Moses, he's the, the prophet of God leading the people. And Aaron is the high priest of God who leads the worship. And they're saying, well, why can't we all do these things? And perhaps we might think, yeah, maybe what's, they might have something there. Verse 4, though, Moses says, uh, well, he sees how serious this is. He falls down before God. And then he proposes a test. Korah and all his followers, they must gather with their censers. Censers are these sort of poles with a little container on the top. You could put some fire in. And, uh, and they're all going to gather with these, these censers. They're all going to be there with Aaron as well. And God will show who he wants to have as his priest. That will be the test. But verse 8, even before the test, Moses, he's so confident of the result that he's confident to rebuke them. And he speaks to the Levites specifically. He speaks to them because they've been given a special status by God. Uh, do you know the Levites, they're this tribe that are set apart to be the ones working around the tabernacle, um, making it all operate. Uh, the priests will come from that tribe. But here the Levites are gathering and saying, we want more. We all want to be the priests. Verse 11, Moses says, this is no little thing. Grumbling against Aaron is grumbling against the Lord. And as we think about the sin, think about what's going on here. We see this sin, it's a mix of things. There's a presumption about themselves. There's a, an envy of Aaron. And together this makes a discontentment and a defiance of how God has arranged things. The presumption. We can just come before God. We could do the offerings. Why couldn't we? And though you know, maybe we think, actually, no, of course you couldn't. But I think there's a similar kind of presumption 
in, uh, in religion today. For those who do believe in God, what do they think about, uh, about them and God? Generally, people just assume that we can pray to God, don't we? He'll be interested in us. And when we die, well, we, we're going to heaven to be with Him. It's how we all think, but um, on what grounds is any of that true? The reality is God is very big and we're very small. God is very holy and we're very sinful. We don't actually have a right of access to God. It's like seeing a celebrity out having dinner with their family and you just walk up and demand a selfie. It's quite rude. It's presumptuous. And with God, it's dangerous. It's sinful. The presumption is joined with envy. Envy of Aaron and his role. And and envy affects us all, doesn't it? We want what other people have. I want a house like them. I want a car like them. I want a social life like them. Happens in church as well. I should be doing that role. I'd be better at that ministry. I should be leading that small group. It's envy. But envy is also discontentment with God, with how God arranges things. We're basically saying, God, you've got it wrong. We're not happy with the place that he's put us in in life. Again, it's treating God like he's small and simple, and he should do what we want. Ultimately, it's defiance. And should God take it lightly? There's still more sin here in this passage, verse 12. Now it's Dathan and Abiram, those who supported Korah, but their problem's a little bit different. They, they just don't want to accept the authority of Moses anymore. And they play on this idea of a land flowing with milk and honey. They say, you led us out of a land like that, looking back to Egypt, uh, not into one. So they say, you failed. So no, we don't want you anymore. And in their hearts, you can see this strong sense of, I know best. No one's going to tell me what to do. And this is very human too, isn't it? Who knows best? I know best. We only accept authority over us for as long as they agree with us. Politically or at work, or at church. As soon as someone does something we don't agree with, then we don't accept them. We start complaining about them. But doesn't that show it's not true submission in the first place? Now, our leaders may well have made mistakes, but our heart and our general disposition is proud. We're more critical of them than we would be of ourselves. Blind to our own shortcomings. And it goes hand in hand with this refusal to submit to God. All's fine when God agrees with us. But it's a different story when God challenges us. So this Old Testament picture is showing up some sins. Sins of presumption, envy, discontentedness, defiance 
and pride. And seeing it in them, perhaps we should start to think if we could see it in ourselves. But then how bad is this? Where on the scale of things does this go? Well, the rest of the account shows us that this is deadly serious. Verse 16, let's gather with our senses. Verse 19, the Lord appears. Verse 21, he says he will destroy everyone. But this is an opportunity again for Moses to plead for their sake. That's his role. So verse 22, not everyone, Lord. Verse 23, okay, it will just be Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and those with them. Move away from them if you want to be safe. Verse 28, Moses announces the details of the test. It's in God's hands now. Do you remember from a few weeks ago, there was that test for the unfaithful wife? This is it in action. It's in God's hands now. If nothing happens, natural deaths, then they were right. But verse 30, if a supernatural thing happens, a new thing, if the ground swallows them up, then it was sin. This was contempt for the Lord. And that very thing happens. The earth opened beneath them and swallowed them up. It was terrifying to behold. And verse 35, the other 250 are destroyed by fire. It's awful, isn't it? Absolutely awful. And what do we make of it? Above all else, we must see the seriousness of sin. If we think this is unfair, we haven't understood the seriousness of defying God. All these forms of sin are a a rejection of Him, a rejection of the Creator and the life giver. So is it any surprise that life is taken away? And this isn't just a thing which happened in the past. It's a picture of what will happen in the future. In different parts of the Bible, different pictures are used to describe the final judgment. Jesus used many of his own pictures in the Gospels. But this is one, isn't it? How do you help people understand the most terrible thing with terrible pictures? People being swallowed up by the ground. People being consumed by fire. I'm afraid to say hell is this bad. Our problem is we don't think sin is this bad. And why would we? Because we'd have to say that we're this bad. An additional unpleasantness here is how the families are caught up in it. It doesn't seem right, does it? Uh, The the sort of families of these men are swallowed up into the ground as well. Um, We don't realize how connected people are, I think. We live in a very individualistic culture. Each person has, its own, has their own rights and is considered individually. But we don't notice the way in life they're actually very, very connected people. When great things happen to someone, whole families celebrate, don't they? 
I wonder if when you were watching the Olympics, you'd see a sort of a swimmer win gold medal, but the coverage would pan and cut immediately to their family at home celebrating, and, and then they'd be interviewed, and the families would be congratulated. Or in a more Christian sense, the good actions of parents impact their children. It's, it's not formulaic, but parents who, who make a house that is uh, uh, safe and, and, and living well, that will be a blessing to their children and affect the way that they grow up. And in a negative sense, bad things that we do impact other people, not just ourselves. So the sins of parents have repercussions on their children. Sadly, they often have to share the shame and consequences of their parents' actions. We are connected people. Please know that your sin is serious and it won't just affect you. But look where we go. Where does this go next? Just one more thing as we move on. Look at verse 41. Even after that visible and terrible judgment from God, sin continues. Verse 41, the next day, the whole Israelite assembly grumbled against Moses and Aaron. This seems mad, doesn't it? All the people now rebelling. But this is showing us that rebellion against God is in the hearts of us all. Even the reality of judgment is not enough to stop us. Friends, what lesson will we learn from this Old Testament story? We've got to see the seriousness of sin. It's in us all, in all sorts of ways, and so judgment is coming. The wrath of God is at the door. Friends, I fear we do not always appreciate the magnitude of these things. See the seriousness of sin. Next then, there is more to see. We can also see the stunning Savior. See the stunning Savior. This is the second way in which this passage paints a very dramatic picture to help us appreciate the gospel of Jesus. Verses 41 to 50, see the stunning Savior. Aaron the priest, he's been challenged, but Aaron the priest has been vindicated. He's actually vindicated twice in this, uh, in this section, first, he's the last man standing with his censer. All the other censers are then gathered up and melted down and put on the altar. That's verses 36 to 40. It's a surprising use of the rebellious men's censers, isn't it? To have it sort of put over the altar at the very center of worship to God. But they serve as a warning, verse 40, that no one but Aaron and his descendants may come before the Lord. He's actually established again in chapter 17. We didn't read chapter 17. You can read it later, but there's another proof given. Here it's not censors, but now it's staffs. Whose staff will miraculously sprout flowers? Well, 
Aaron's does. No one else's, just Aaron's. And so that staff is also put in the tent as a sign that only he can come in. Two proofs, two long-standing signs, censers and staffs. Aaron is the true priest. But look what the true priest can do. Verse 41, they grumble again, all the people this time. Verse 42, the cloud appears again. God is here. Moses and Aaron are told to stand back. A plague is about to start. But Moses tells Aaron how to save the day. Verse 46, get your censer, the true censer of the high priest. Get coals from the altar, the place of sacrifice. Take the fire and run to the people and make atonement. That's the Bible word for stopping the wrath of God. He is their only hope. The plague has started. People are dying under the judgment of God. Verse 47, Aaron runs into the middle of it, into the middle of a plague, putting his own life in danger, far from separating himself. Aaron, who's just the day before and just this very moment, had the whole nation rise up against him, He runs in. And the plague is tearing through the people. This is no slow incubation, no long drawn out death. There are people catching it and dying it before they know what's happening. No one is escaping and it's working its way through the camp. People are fleeing. But here comes Aaron running against the crowd, holding his censer, and he reaches the line of the plague, and he stands there between the living and the dead. He makes atonement, and the plague stops. What a scene. What a scene. The dead, thousands of them on one side. And Aaron standing there, holding out his censer with fire from the altar of God, facing down the plague, stopping the wrath. And behind him, thousands more cowering in fear. But living. The true priest makes atonement. The true priest stands between the living and the dead. The true priest makes a stunning salvation. And isn't this a picture of Jesus? Jesus was the ultimate priest, sent by God. He was despised and rejected by all his people, spoken against, schemed against, yet in love, He rushed into the world, into the midst of his people, into the deadly plague of sin. As he died on the cross, he put himself between us and the wrath of God. He made atonement. He rose and now he stands between the living and the dead. If you want to understand these Old Testament stories, you need to think about Jesus. And if you want to understand more about Jesus, you need these various pictures from the Old Testament. And this is a crucial one, isn't it? If you're not a Christian here today and you're struggling to get your head around all of these things, uh, struggling with the Christian message, you've heard maybe bits and pieces, well, I hope this might help. 
if you're a Christian, but it's getting all muddled, all, all the troubles and confusions, and you're losing grasp of what Christianity is all about. Whatever your situation, let's take this picture today and make this our picture of Christianity. We're the people facing the plague. Our sin is so serious. The judgment of God is due to come upon us. But what is our hope? It's the one man, the high priest, standing in the face of the plague. Who are Christians? We're a bunch of sinners sheltering behind Jesus from the wrath we deserve. There's lots of complexity in life, but sometimes it's worth putting things very simply. And seeing things like this puts everything else in perspective, doesn't it? Friends, I pray we might appreciate the magnitude of what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. Dear God, we are sorry for our persistent sin, we just keep on defying you. We're sorry, Lord, but we thank you so much for Jesus. We can't thank you enough. Help us to understand and to believe and to hold tight to Jesus. Amen.